tonight what I'd like to share with you are some reflections on the importance of mystery on the spiritual path. Because for me, what I've noticed uh, just personally along the spiritual path, it's been a kind of a way of framing something that's been so important about what unfolds on a spiritual path for myself. And that, that word captures something um, around that. And it is true, the, most of what we're teaching here uh, is from what you could call early Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism. And so much of, you could say, the main narrative of early Buddhism, which probably many of you know from many talks, is it's about suffering, our, the, our human predicament, and how to disentangle from that suffering. And, and I, I want to be honest. I, I love that narrative. I love talking about suffering and the end of suffering. Like last week, some of you were here. We we talked about you know not getting fooled. You know, it was April Fools. Don't don't get fooled by your mind. And this exploration, which has been really important for me, is noticing how this mind functions. You know, and sometimes it functions in certain ways because of family or society or even biology. And when I begin to see it, I can start to disentangle from it, whatever it is, whether it be you know issues of anxiety or depression or, you know, one thing that's been uh, curious for me is, is uh, kind of how I've been taught to perform masculinity and how problematic that's been for myself and probably for those people around me as well. <laughs> and to disentangle from that is, is such a liberating thing to do and it fits so well with this practice. So yeah, suffering and the, and the end of suffering. And yet, what I found in, in early Buddhism, and especially later Buddhism, are these threads of what I would call mystery, and, and how important I think that is for our human lives, in the midst of all these challenges that we might be facing. This weekend, my wife and I took an excursion to uh, the Petrified Forest National Park. Has anybody been there? You've never been there? I'd never been there before. It was really like, wow, this is like, it was really, really quite striking and amazing. And, and just at this time, there was starting to be these um, desert flowers that were blooming in the, in the, you could say in the spring, in the middle of the spring here. So it's just so really wondrous and, and beautiful to see these delicate flowers in the desert and very emotionally moving to see them. There was, it was awe-inspiring, and, and to me that was, there was a kind of touching mystery in that way of slowing down to take something in that's so simple yet so profound. And then just taking some time in that, that, that area, the desert, right next to the, uh, what was it, the Red Painted Desert there, and hiking out into that area and amongst the, it was kind of a windy day, really beautiful sun, and even it rained a little bit, which is always quite magical in the desert. And of course, the petrified wood. I mean, what a trip that is. It's just unbelievable. There's, there's something mysterious about this activity of living on this earth that I find so moving, and this practice brings me closer to that. And then after spending a lot of the day in the desert, we went to the visitor center, and the thing that we got kind of obsessed with was this, it was great, there was this timeline of the Earth's history, the 4.5 billion year history of the Earth. And which, you know, that, that 
number is so incomprehensible, it really doesn't mean anything to me. But the analogy that really works for me is to, to understand it in terms of a calendar. Like if we were to squish 4.5 billion years into one calendar year, it, it gives more weight or heft to it. So supposedly, and please don't ask me questions about this because I don't know a lot about it. Like I saw some picture of it and then I looked this up a little bit. So, <laughs> But so they say, if we were to scrunch those, that 4.5 billion years into a calendar year, it would be on February 25th that life appears. And then it's not until December, not until December 13th of, you could say, the Earth's history that the first mammals begin to appear. And then it's not until December 28th that the first primates appear, which I think is really quite amazing. And then do you know when we appear, Homo sapiens? I think it's eight seconds before the end. Close. 11.36 p.m. on December 31st. <laughs> We haven't been around very long. Yeah. So such, such a short amount of time. And I think agriculture came around around 11.59 p.m. on December 31st. It gives a different feeling, doesn't it? It's really just there's something that, that actually got shaken in me, just kind of really taking that in of the Earth's history and, and my place in it as a human being. Because there is something so mysterious about being alive. And in terms of this context of the spiritual path, to me, what's so mysterious and what's so awe-inspiring and wondrous is being aware, which you could say was, is something we come back to again and again on Monday nights, is this exploration of just, you could say, the mystery of being aware. So yeah, we've been here just a short while in terms of the Earth's history. Actually, Brian Swim, the author, puts it well. He said, four and a half billion years ago, the earth was a flaming molten ball of rock, and now it can sing opera. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? So yeah, mystery, this mystery of being, this mystery of being aware. And of course, this isn't the mystery of mystery novels. <laughs> and it's also not the mystery of merely not knowing or ignorance. I don't think that's what that word at least points to me to in a, in a spiritual context. To me, when I come back to that experience, just of those delicate flowers in the de desert or the mystery of being aware it has a kind of openness there in my heart that I have an openness to the experience of being where a curiosity and yet also an intimacy with it coming close to those experiences that open that dimension up of, of our lives. And also I would say mystery in terms of that which is beyond language, that which is beyond reason. And this is, I think, where it overlaps, you find, with Buddhism, especially Buddha, early Buddhism, and then we'll see even in later Buddhism. 
For example, after, so the story goes, after the Buddha was awakened, he exclaimed this. He, he, he thought this to himself after his full awakening, this kind of this opening, this full opening of his, of his heart. And he said, the Dhamma. So the word Dhamma is, it's the Pali word for Dharma. Many of you probably know the word Dharma, which is just the Sanskrit version of Dhamma. And that word can be translated in, in many different ways. And, and this, you can maybe translate it in terms of the truth. The truth, not a capital T truth, but the truth, the way things are, the, the nature, the true nature of our experience. So he says, the Dhamma that I have attained is profound. It is hard to see and hard to understand. Peaceful and sublime. Unattainable by mere reasoning. Subtle and to be experienced by the wise. And he felt that it was so profound, so hard to see and understand, so beyond reason and how our mind thinks about things. That he, he thought, he said, if, if I were to teach the Dhamma, if I were to teach this path, others would not understand me. And that would be wearying and troublesome for me. So maybe I shouldn't do it. <laughs> Luckily, there was a deity that came down, Brahma Sahampati, and said, oh, no, no, there's many people with little dust in their eyes that have this potential for freedom. And then later on, a little later on in, in Buddhism, one of the probably one of the most, empower, one, one of the most important figures in the history of Buddhism is uh, uh, a practitioner by the name of uh, Nagarjuna. And he poetically says something about the Buddha and, 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 and has a poetic power to it. And maybe at first confusing, but it may be in, important for it to be confusing. He said in a poetic way, he said, not a single syllable has been uttered by the Buddha in actuality. So what is he getting at here? That the Buddha never uttered a single syllable and never uttered a word. He's pointing to something that becomes very important in Buddhism is to see how words deceive us constantly. Because so often a word, like if I say bell, it implies something. It's, it implies that there's something substantial, something kind of eternal about things. It can deny change in some way. And even saying a bell, it can, have, it can set up uh, ideas about our experience that maybe aren't necessarily true. And especially in terms of mystery, the mystery of all this, words can be so deceiving. So in that way, how could a Buddha speak? How could awakening speak? If it's really intimately in contact with the mystery of all this, what would it say? Maybe the only response would be silence. So the Dharma, this path, it's, it's beyond any words that can be uttered. It's, it's so much vaster. And probably you've had these experiences where you have experiences that feel like no words can touch it, whether it be the flower in the desert or simply the act of being aware or breathing. There's something ineffable about it, something incomprehensible, yet you can be intimate with it, right? You can touch it, even though it might not be something that you can rationally understand. 
you probably know what I'm talking about. This is what gives so much of, I think, the, the juice to our lives is touching mystery like this. And this, you could say, flavor of mystery becomes the, the central component to, to Zen Buddhism, which comes uh, later on in Buddhism. For example, there's a, there's a story told about the beginning of, of Buddhism. It's, uh, it takes place on Vulture Peak. Vulture Peak is still a place you can visit in, in India, in, in Rajgir, India, and it's um, quite high up. You can look up, look over, um, really, really this vast area. And it said it's, it's uh, one of the Buddha's favorite places to do retreat. And he gave many teachings on top of uh, Vulture Peak. So there's a teaching that he gave when he was on top of Vulture Peak and with all, surrounded by many monastics and practitioners. And as I like to point out, that this is, you know, this is a story that's not a factual story, but it's a true story. This is important. Because sometimes we always want to have true factual stories, as if factual stories are true. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes non-factual stories have more truth to them. I remember when I was at the Zen Center, I was speaking, speaking to somebody who was an avid reader, and I asked him if he read fiction or nonfiction. He said he always read, he always read fiction because he thought it was closer to the truth than nonfiction books. <laughs> so that was an interesting, uh, interesting perspective. I don't know, but it was an interesting perspective. So anyway, here's the Buddha on top of Vulture Peak, and um, you know, there about to give a, a sermon, and I can even model this a little bit. And, you know, there's this whole assembly of his monastics, and the Buddha um, is sitting there in front of them. And he does one thing. He holds up a flower. That's all he does. He holds up the flower. And as he's holding up the flower, one monk, the Venerable Mahakashapa, smiles. And then the Buddha exclaims, he says, I have the treasury of the true Dharma eye, the subtle mind of nirvana or nibbana or of awakening, the true form of no form, and the flawless gate to this teaching. It is not established on words and phrases. It is a special transmission outside the teaching. And now I entrust it to you, Mahakashipa. So in, in the raising of a flower, something was communicated. Something of the mysteriousness of freedom, of awakening. And Mahakashipa understood. It's not like the Buddha gave him something or actually transmitted something to it. It was just a, a confirmation that that Mahakashipa had the treasury of the true Dharma eye. And it's from there that the lineage of all the schools of Zen Buddhism supposedly began. And, and those of you who are, know about Zen Buddhism, the, this, this phrase that I have the treasury of the true Dharma eye, the treasury of the true Dharma eye, this is the, the title of Dogen's greatest work, Shobo Genzo. That's what it means, is the treasury of the true Dharma eye. 
I share this story with you because it, it points out how mystery is not the mystery of not understanding. Mahakashiba understood something in that moment with the direct experience of the flower. Something happened there. There was an understanding. So it's not about not understanding or not knowing, but rather the mystery in terms of a kind of understanding that's, that's beyond language, something that can't be established on words and phrases. This realm, the realm beyond language. And yet, and yet we use language. Here I am talking to you about going beyond language. I'm using language to convey that to you. And Buddhism has, you know, vast amounts of literature talking just about this. And I think what's so important about, you could say, us coming together or even community is that language or more precisely words point. They point in a particular direction and can help reveal things, sometimes in, in very simple ways. For example, you're having a meal with a friend and you taste something and it's like, wow, there's some there's some spice in there. There's something in there. And I, I kind of have a sense of it, but I don't know exactly what it is. Like there's a mixture of a few different spices in here. And then maybe the friend says, oh, I put just a little bit of rosemary in there. And then if you've ever had that experience where somebody says, oh, there's just a little bit of rosemary in that dish. And then it's like, oh, you can taste it. It like clarifies that subtle taste, that subtle flavor that's in that dish. You ever have that experience? It like sharpens perception and then it reveals it more. It's like the, 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 the word rosemary reveals more of that flavor. Oh yeah, that is, that is rosemary. Oh, now I can taste it. Interesting. There it is. Something opens up, something clarifies. And it could be the taste of rosemary in its essence has nothing to do with the word, right? It has nothing to do with the word rosemary, but something got clarified, something got opened up. And I think words many times take us beyond language or reveal different nuances. And it could be around the same thing. Like if, if I were, you know, unfortunately I don't have one, but if I were to say to you, you know, here is a rock and you look at it, there's a rock. But if I hold it up and I have the same object and I say, here is a stone, it conveys something different, doesn't it? Rock has a different feeling tone to it. It's like, almost like when I hear rock, I, I hear, I, I can feel the edges that are there in that object and stone, I can feel the smoothness there. There's something that gets revealed through language, which is so important. I think this is why Jorge Luis, Jorge Luis Borges, the, the great Argentinian author, used to say that each word is a poetic work. 
It has so much depth to it. And one last example of this is, is just around, I think, the poetic, how it points to something that is so sometimes ineffable. I want to share with you a very short poem by W.S. Merwin, in part because I think many of you might know he died a few weeks ago, one of, one of the great poets. And he wrote, uh, to me, a powerful poem entitled Absence, just two lines. He says, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Your absence, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Just those two lines, they point to something really deep about loss, doesn't it? That maybe you can feel into. And, you know, I could say, you know, this poem explains how painful and intense and intense loss is and how it feels pervasive in our life. But that doesn't really capture the heart of it. Of course, there might be something true to what I just said. But those words that I just said don't capture the feeling of it. But for me, that sense of your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. And everything I do is stitched with its color comes so much closer to that feeling of absence. So language and beyond language. And so much of, you know, what's said about awakening in early Buddhism, you find this kind of skirting around talking about it. For example, there is this uh, king, King Pasanadi, and he went to go vi visit this, this town and very wealthy king and he asked his attendant, you know, is there, is there some practitioner or someone where we could oh, go listen to a talk tonight, a Dharma talk? And the, 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 uh, the person with him said, actually his, his attendant said, there's, um, there's a bhikkhuni, the nun uh, Kema, Aya Kema is, is in this town. Let's go um, ask her for teaching. So they go to the Venerable Kema and ask her kind of these classic questions. A lot of times they don't fit for us culturally, but uh, often there's this, just because there's this way of reasoning and questioning during that time. So the king approaches uh, the nun and, and uh, pays homage to her and sits down to one side and asks her, does an awakened one exist after death? And the venerable bhikkhuni, the, the, the nun, 
uh, doesn't say anything really about this question. So then he says, well, does, does an awakened one not exist after death? Because if they exist after death, well, maybe they don't, don't exist after death. And again, she's like, you know, this, this question doesn't apply. Well, if neither applied, well, do both, does an awakened one both exist and not exist after death? Maybe that will fit. <laughs> nope. Well, neither do they exist or not exist after death. You'd think those four questions would cover everything. But she refuses to go there. So he's kind of like, well, what's up with this? Why aren't you answering me? And she gives the analogy. And remember, this is a different time. This isn't these modern times where we have technology to figure these things out. But she basically says, do you have a mathematician or an accountant, venerable one, um, O king, that, that, um, that can calculate the, the number of gallons, how many gallons or hundreds of gallons of water are in the great immeasurable sea? And the king says, well, of course not. Because the great ocean, it's deep, it's immeasurable, it's hard to fathom. And she says, just so, awakening, it's deep, it's immeasurable, it's hard to fathom. And so this practice that we're doing points to this in big ways and even small ways. I mean, it's something that we can play with even around the breath. You know, so often we have this notion, we can sit down, we can start to feel the breath, and the, the, often the, the conception around that is, I am breathing. It's like a pretty common thing as we feel the breath, and then somebody asks you well, what that experience is. Well, it's the experience of myself breathing. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Maybe not so. Maybe there's something more mysterious about breathing. What's it like to let go of that notion of I am breathing? What's it like to contact the sensations involved with breathing to get a different sense of what that activity feels like? To feel it in a way that words can't touch. And to feel, even in the midst of that, the act of being aware. What's up with that, the act of being aware? You know, it's, a, I think, a hip thing in science these days where they try to study consciousness. And as most people studying consciousness, they can't even agree on what consciousness is. Just defining what it is to be conscious, to be aware, is such a tricky thing, let alone trying to, quote-unquote, figure it out. It's such a mystery, and, and what a profound mystery to touch. Also, just want to end by emphasizing, you know, this, the importance of the mystery is that I, I think sometimes when this word is used is that sometimes we can look for that which is dramatic. And that's why I wanted to talk about the flowers in the desert is there might not have been something really dramatic about it, but there can be something really profound about it.
And I think to me, that's the importance of mystery. And, and the, the Zen master, Shan Master Teishan, puts it well. He says, what is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to embrace an ordinary person's life. What would it be like if that's the heart of freedom, if that's the heart of mystery? So let's stretch and then we'll uh, begin to uh, sit together in just a, a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.